Welcome to the second BMJ Open Gastroenterology podcast, being published as part of the Frontline Gastroenterology podcast series. In this episode, we are focusing on a paper entitled Iron Deficiency Anemia, Pathophysiology Assessment, Practical Management, published online in January 2022. This paper has received a lot of social media interest and is currently our most read article. My name is Dr. James Ashton. I'm the social media editor at BMJ Open Gastroenterology and a clinical lecturer in paediatric gastroenterology at Southampton Children's Hospital. I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Aditi Kumar, the first author on this paper, and Professor Matthew Brooks, who is the senior author. Dr. Kumar is a gastroenterology trainee at the Royal Wolverhampton NHS Trust in the UK, and Professor Brooks is a consultant gastroenterologist and leads the gastroenterology clinical research programme at Wolverhampton. He's also Professor of Gastroenterology at the University of Wolverhampton. Both authors have extensive clinical experience related to the diagnosis and management of today's podcast topic, iron deficiency anemia. Dr. Kumar and Professor Brooks, thanks very much for joining me today. Firstly, let's start with the basics. Could I ask you to explain what we mean when we talk about iron deficiency anemia? And do we have any definitions to consider regarding haemoglobin and iron indices? Thanks, James, and and thank you to BMJ Open for the opportunity to discuss this. So when we think about iron deficiency anemia, we tend to try to divide it up into absolute and functional. Um, And then I think it's important to think about iron deficiency on its own and then iron deficiency anemia. So in iron deficiency, that's where the iron indices indicate a deficiency of iron, but the the patient hasn't yet uh, developed anemia. Uh, And in, in iron deficiency anemia, situation has obviously progressed to the patient getting a low haemoglobin. Let's consider absolute iron deficiency. So in this uh, setting uh, where you have a a true iron deficiency, this often occurs as a result of an imbalance between iron uptake, iron use and iron loss. So for example, acute or chronic blood loss or sustained limitation in dietary uh, supply or absorption. And absolute iron deficiency is manifest as a decrease in the total body iron stores. And this is reflected by the tests that we look at, which is the uh, essentially the measures of the uh, low serum levels uh, and in particular low serum uh, ferritin. So ferritin is important in this instance. Um, and absolute iron deficiency is commonly defined by uh, a reduced ferritin level less than 30 milligrams per litre. Now, That's a relative uh, level because uh, in some patients where you have inflammation alongside the iron deficiency, ferritin being an inflammatory protein means the ferritin, the baseline ferritin level can actually be a little bit higher. Uh, And so we have a a little bit of a sort of variable range there. And so it can go up to uh, less than 100 milligrams per litre in patients who have inflammation. Prolonged absolute iron deficiency will usually progress to iron deficiency anemia. And if we look at the World Health Organization criteria for defining this, it uses haemoglobin levels of less than 120 grams per litre in women and less than 130 grams per litre in men. And iron deficiency is also typically characterised by a microcytic or hyperchromic picture uh, in the um, erythrocytes. And this can be another way of helping to diagnose. So using, for example, uh, the percentage of hypochromic red cells or even a low reticulocyte haemoglobin concentration. These are historic ways that we used to uh, think about iron deficiency in the past. These last two measures are much less commonly used now. 
And then finally, functional iron deficiency is where patients have a, a state of relative sort of inflammatory disorder. And so uh, functional iron deficiency describes where the there is an impaired iron mobilization. So the iron may be present and the total body iron stores are normal or, or even a little elevated, uh, but the iron is in the wrong place and can't be mobilized. And this occurs as a result of inflammation, infection, chronic disease, where those normal pathways of iron transport and iron metabolism are disrupted. Um, functional iron deficiency uh, is often associated again with low circulating serum iron levels and a transferrin saturation of less than 20% uh, and normal or sometimes increased serum ferritin levels, often above 100 milligrams per litre, usually associated with features of systemic inflammation, such as a high CRP. That sort of covers some of those key uh, features about diagnosis of functional and absolute iron deficiency. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. And I think it's really important to have those definitions up front and think about the different ways in which we can talk about iron deficiency anemia before we move on to the following questions. And the next thing I want to talk about is whilst it's out of the central scope of this review, I think it'd be good to briefly discuss potential causes of iron deficiency anemia that healthcare professionals may encounter and what we need to think about in terms of investigations for those potential causes. Thanks, James. So, yeah, this I mean, this is really, really crucial. And I'll maybe kick off with this and, and then maybe Aditi can come in just to, to talk a little bit about some of the investigations. But it is important when you see a patient with iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia to think about those those causes, because that will essentially drive the diagnostic pathways and there are many causes of iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia. And I'll run through some of those with a higher prevalence. So some of the features that some of the things that we see regularly are things like non-variceal upper gastrointestinal bleeding. And the prevalence of anemia in this setting can be over 80% in, in present in over 80% of patients who are admitted with non-variceal upper GI bleeding at the time of their discharge. Some of the other high prevalent conditions where we see iron deficiency include celiac disease and there's a, a well-established relationship between celiac disease, iron malabsorption and iron deficiency anemia. And probably we see um, that the prevalence of anemia in celiac patients between a third up to perhaps two thirds. Intestinal parasitic infections are certainly will, from a worldwide perspective are a very important cause of iron deficiency anemia, uh, perhaps less common uh, in the UK, uh, but again, uh, where you have intestinal parasitic infections, iron deficiency anemia prevalence can be between a third and up to two thirds. Gastrointestinal cancers, which are perhaps one of the mainstays of our diagnostic pathways, so patients who are coming through fast-track pathways who've been identified with iron deficiency anemia, one of the key primary reasons for their referral is to exclude upper and lower gastrointestinal cancers. And in upper and lower gastrointestinal cancers, we do see prevalence of anemia anywhere between 50, 60, and sometimes at higher percentages. Colorectal cancer is probably one of the most commonly associated causes, uh, and in particular, tumours in the right side of the colon are found in patients with iron deficiency anemia. 
other conditions to think about in terms of GI cancers, gastrointestinal stromal tumours, we mustn't forget, uh, gastric cancers and small bowel malignancies are extremely, extremely rare, but also something uh, that it's worth considering. And, and in small bowel malignancies, although they are very rare, anemia is one of the most common presenting symptoms. And then uh, finally, esophageal cancers, which again will be picked up by some of the diagnostic pathways. Some of the other Possible causes include patients who've been through bariatric failure, uh, patients who have esophagitis and hiatus hernia, and it's uh, often missed as an association in those cases. Diverticular disease can cause uh, an increased uh, risk of iron deficiency anemia, particularly in the elderly population. Uh, and then there are some other conditions associated, including non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug use, low-dose aspirin, um, angiodysplasia, and things like gastric antral vascular ectasia, and even gastritis and peptic ulcer disease. There are a number of non-GI causes as well, including uh, cardiac failure, and there's uh, good data for um, therapeutic interventions in patients with cardiac failure using intravenous iron. And this is certainly not an exhaustive list, but it's Sometimes we're thinking about when you're considering these, dividing these different causes into groups. Like, for example, perhaps splitting them up into those disorders where there is bleeding or blood loss, those conditions where you've got malabsorption and those conditions where you've got inflammation. Anything there that I've missed, Aditi? Is there anything you want to add? And, and then just, I guess, we probably ought to discuss some of the um, investigations. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, I think you've given quite an exhaustive list, actually. Things that I would probably mention um, would be inflammatory bowel disease is quite well linked to iron deficiency anemia, um, where anemia can be a sign of active disease. It's also worth considering non-GI causes, and you've already mentioned heart failure, but chronic kidney disease, non-GI malignancies. You can also think about scenarios um, with pre- and post-operative as well as in pregnancy or elderly patients, they can also have iron deficiency anemia. In terms of investigations, I would think that obvious things is confirming that you do have a diagnosis of iron deficiency anemia. Um, and that would obviously be with um, a low hemoglobin as well as your serum ferritin. And Matt's already kind of gone through this in the previous question, so I won't go into it in too much detail. The next thing seems pretty obvious would be taking a very detailed history as it can give you, you know, important clues as to what the causes of the anemia can be. And then initial investigations would be um, urinalysis, screening for celiac disease. I think that's quite important and often can be missed. And then in appropriate cases, endoscopic examination of both the upper and lower GI tract is also recommended. And I think, James, it's worth considering when we're doing those um, upper and lower GI tract investigations, so gastroscopy and colonoscopy, that we, we also think about the gender and the age of the patient. So um, often in premenopausal women, we tend not to necessarily uh, investigate with gastroscopy and colonoscopy. But if we've got cohorts who are postmenopausal or in, in male patients, then uh, there is usually a fast track pathway for dealing with and investigating those patients endoscopically. And there are uh, several papers out there published on current guidelines for investigating iron deficiency anemia that are, that are well worth the read as well. 
That's brilliant. And I think it, again, highlights that the investigations need to be tailored to the presentation and the demographic of the patient. Let's move on and talk a little bit about treatment. So there's lots of different preparations of iron out there, including intravenous and oral formulations. How would we approach choosing an agent for a specific individual? In recent years, we've really expanded our medical compendium of iron agents. And I think we're quite lucky to have a large variety of agents to choose from. However, um, I think there's lots of factors to consider when choosing the right formulation and agent. And that includes, you know, the severity of the anemia, cost, the availability and access to the drug. Um, We also need to consider side effects. And I think patient preference is really important and, you know, their associated comorbidities. So... While oral iron formulations are very well established and they're very easy to prescribe and can be prescribed by you know, both primary and secondary care, they're also cheap, um, cheaper than the intravenous options at least. They are limited by considerable side effects and variable absorption rates. So recent studies have shown to counteract the side effects, um, you can now give once daily dosing or even alternate dosing, so every other day, and that can be just as effective. However, um, Oral iron can take a long time to start working, you know, with some um, formulations needing a minimum of two months to work and can take up to six months to really correct the iron deficit, depending on which one you choose. And this can actually be quite a long time when you consider non-adherence or even missed doses, which I think everyone knows is quite common to miss a dose. And this obviously would not be very ideal for your symptomatic patients. So then you have the intravenous iron options, and they work quickly, and they have a better safety profile than the oral iron because it bypasses your um, GI tract absorption. It's also a good choice if you're worried about patient adherence, but unfortunately, the downsides are that with intravenous iron, it is quite expensive, um, considerably more expensive than your oral iron, and it isn't as easily accessible. So you need access to an infusion center, and, you know, and you not only you need access, you also need to be able to staff it appropriately. And that comes with its own additional costs. In terms of comorbidities, some conditions can be exacerbated by oral iron, like in IBD. Um, although this has only been proven in animal studies so far, this still needs to be considered when you're deciding on which preparation to give these patients. So really, I think the decision for oral versus intravenous has to be very carefully considered. You have to take all these factors into account. And really, at the end of the day, You need to have a joint discussion between the clinician and the patient to ensure that optimal management is achieved for their iron deficiency anemia. That's brilliant. And yeah, I think that as we've talked about with the investigations before, tailoring the treatment in this scenario to the specific patient needs and also potentially what they would wish for is is really important. Now, I wanted to highlight something from the paper. Figure two provides an excellent management strategy for IBD patients with iron deficiency anemia in both primary and secondary care. How do you think this translates to screening and treating for iron deficiency anemia patients in the general population? I'm slightly biased because I agree. Uh, Aditi and I obviously wrote the paper and I think figure two is a really beautiful example of uh, a management pathway. It comes down to, you know, what we've discussed already. It's about individualising and personalising care of in the settings with iron deficiency anemia and associating that with the underlying cause. And there is 
as Aditi's already covered, there's an increasing pool of data now out there in, in terms of randomised control trials for different therapies and different interventions being suitable for specific care patients. But more widely for the general population where you don't yet have an underlying diagnosis, it's, it's slightly more difficult to translate those therapies uh, without that sort of understanding of the uh, underlying cause and the established management pathways. In an ideal world, I think we'd want a figure two for every patient with an understanding of the underlying cause um, and then a, a pathway based around the evidence-based treatment course. But we don't yet have that. In terms of screening patients, you know, there's a good deal of evidence to support management pathways. We know that there are patients at high risk of iron deficiency anemia. And the inflammatory bowel disease cohort, there have been some really pivotal defining randomised control trials that have really enabled us to create a more structured and evidence-based approach to treatment as outlined in figure two. Uh, and that helps in terms of screening in that cohort. I think in the inflammatory bowel disease cohort, we tend to monitor patients fairly proactively in the clinic and they routinely get haemoglobin testing as part of their, their workup. I think similar happens in other areas where patients are seen regularly and often testing for anemia is undertaken regularly through the clinic. So congestive cardiac failure, patients with renal failure and in preoperative settings, for example, where there is increasing evidence for interventions using things like intravenous iron treatment preoperatively in certain settings. These patients are often identified in those preoperative clinics. In terms of wider population screening, I don't think at the moment there's much value in advocating this, and I don't think there's much data to support outside of higher-risk cohorts population screening. However, in those higher-risk cohorts or categories where it's more likely to be the case, I'd certainly advocate haemoglobin or full blood count testing. Uh, and this is, for example, in those cohorts that I've already set out, but also in patients who have relative symptoms who are at higher risks. So, for example, those patients who suffer with lethargy and tiredness in premenopausal women, it's certainly worth considering initially haemoglobin testing through the full blood count. And then also, if you're concerned about that, if the heme, uh, full blood count comes back and shows a low haemoglobin, then expanding that to include iron stores, potentially hematinics. Uh, so I think certainly in those cases, it's worth looking at. And in those conditions where is there, where there is a higher prevalence of iron deficiency anemia, uh, then as part of their diagnostic workup and their management uh, in the clinic, it's worth testing uh, the full blood count. Um, in terms of wider treating, we do increasingly have pathways and, and evidence to support interventions. So as well as for figure two that exists now for managing patients with inflammatory bowel disease associated anemia, in preoperative settings, for example, uh, NICE have a number of guidelines which outline how to manage preoperative anemia, including the use of intravenous iron when oral can't be tolerated. So I think there is in increasing uh, data available. There are increasingly uh, patient-specific, condition-specific pathways that will enable us to manage anemia in those settings. Perfect. Thank you very much. So finally, in the paper, there are some specific diseases which are discussed related to iron deficiency anemia, with iron deficiency anemia frequently pointing towards 
one of these underlying conditions or iron deficiency anemia being associated with adverse outcomes. I guess the point is, can you tell us why identification and management of iron deficiency anemia is so important for patients with a variety of different underlying problems? Thanks, James. I think that's a, that's a really good question. As Matt's already stated, you know, iron deficiency anemia can be found in lots of different conditions from quite sinister causes like malignancy to your comorbid conditions like heart failure, um, CKD, inflammatory bowel disease. And it can also just be seen in normal physiological processes like in pregnancy. Now, iron deficiency anemia can also be a result of medication use, um, particularly, you know, your antiplatelets, anticoagulants, anti-inflammatories, and even antidepressants, just to name a few. And, you know, studies have shown that not treating the anemia can actually worsen your underlying condition. To complicate matters, there are common symptoms of iron deficiency anemia like fatigue, breathlessness, um, lethargy, dizziness, lightheadedness, just to name a few. And these can be seen in most of these conditions I've just stated. And it can make it really difficult to determine if your symptoms are secondary to the anemia or if they're secondary to the underlying condition. I think we, we get so focused on treating the underlying condition, we can sometimes overlook what's right in front of our eyes. And unfortunately, not treating the anemia can then exacerbate your underlying disease. And this leads to a very vicious cycle. And ultimately, it's the patient that ends up suffering the consequences. So at the end of the day, iron deficiency anemia is very easily identifiable with blood tests. And it's also very easy to treat. Therefore, I think it's really important to identify anemia early, investigate for the potential causes, and then treat with the appropriate agent because replenishing iron stores have shown to not only improve your clinical symptoms, but it also leads to an improved quality of life. So it's a really easy win for us clinicians. Brilliant. Thank you very much to Dr. Kumar and Professor Brooks for joining us today and discussing this excellent paper. We'll be publishing more BMJ Open Gastroenterology podcasts in 2022 and beyond. Please keep an eye out for these and our monthly blog summarising interesting articles and topics. All are available from the main BMJ Open Gastroenterology website. Please subscribe to our podcast via all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider leaving us a review and a rating on the BMJ Open Gastroenterology and Frontline Gastroenterology podcast iTunes page. Thank you for listening.